Um, TVR was really great. Uh, I'm really excited after going to uh, be taking our kids up there. Uh, the theme for TVR this week was Exodus. And, uh, and so they were looking at that biblical story of Moses uh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt through the wilderness, and then eventually Joshua leading them into the promised land. And so as I taught through the week, I taught uh, primarily on the fact that salvation as we've understood it uh, has been this idea that God is saving us out of something. Uh, and we all kind of recognize that, that God is saving us out of hell um, and out of sin that, and, and death that we deserve because of sin. Uh, but I really wanted to hit hard on the, in, with them the fact that like, God is also saving us into something else. Uh, God doesn't just save us out of something. Uh, he doesn't just save us out of hell. He saves us into himself. And so each night we looked at the fact that we are being saved out of something and into something else. And the last night we, we looked at the fact that we're, we're saved uh, out of selfishness and into mission. Uh, and I talked to them about the fact that if we are uh, if we're ever going to uh, be able to complete this mission of God that we have. But if we're ever going to complete this mission that God has put us on, uh, we're, we're going to have to imitate uh, Christ. We're going to have to imitate the life and the works, the maturity of Christ. And not only that, we're going to have to imitate the apostolic witness that we have, the life and maturity uh, of the apostles. And that's really what we're looking at here. And so uh, I've titled this sermon, um, In Your Face, Peter. Uh, Paul. And so, <laughs> I was really hoping that would go, but uh, <laughs> there it is. One thing I learned at, at, at TVR is that if you have any chance of having a good sermon, you have to make them laugh first. Um, so, it's not going to be pretty, guys. <laughs> um, no, uh, in your face, Peter, and you'll see where that comes from. Actually, the, the title is something more like uh, Justified by Faith. Justification is by faith. We're looking at Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 through 21. Um, let, let me pray, and, and let's just, let's really get going. Uh, God, you're good. You have a lot to teach us about our own hearts. Uh, we, we really love to be able to, to do something we love, feeling uh, like we've accomplished things, feeling like we have um, intrinsic value. And Lord, we know that just being created in your image, we do have intrinsic value, but uh, we uh, are broken by sin and we need to be humbled by it. And so God, through your servant, Paul, um, as he is read and taught by me, uh, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, uh, that you would be revealing to us who we are, who you are, and that we would cherish Jesus. Um, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, and so while you're turning to Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 through 21, uh, we're going to quickly uh, give a resume of the Apostle Peter. Um, and, and this may seem strange uh, because Galatians was written by Paul, but it'll make sense in a little bit. So let's look briefly at perhaps if Peter were applying for head pastor of Grace Community Church, uh, the resume that he would give. Uh, and so there, there are some things that, that we see Peter might first say, you know, I walked on water. Uh, and 
Uh, if it's a resume, it's always weird writing resumes, right? Because you have to kind of embellish a little bit. So he might leave out the part where he cried like a girl and fell in the water. Uh, but <clears throat> nonetheless, he walked on water. Uh, if you remember in Matthew 16, Peter made the, the church's first confessional statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and because he says this, Jesus says, on you, Peter... I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, Peter preached the first sermon of the Christian church. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, right, Pentecost, the Spirit comes down, people are speaking in tongues, and to outsiders, it's like, "Um, these guys are drunk. I don't know what they're drinking, but either we need some or we need to outlaw it. And Peter gets up and says, we are not drunk on wine, but rather the Spirit. And he goes on to preach uh, the, the first sermon of the Christian church, uh, which leads to thousands of conversions. And thus, Peter founds and becomes the pastor of the first megachurch, the Jerusalem church. 3,000 on the first day? Are you kidding me? Um, three, I don't even know what we would do if 3,000 people got saved and started coming to, to grace. But, um, but Peter, on day one, we get 3,000 more people added, uh, at least, and, and, and that's just probably counting men. So we're talking households there. Uh, he pastors the first megachurch. He saw literally thousands of, con- thousands of people converted, including taking among the first Gentile mission trips. Uh, that's a hefty, hefty resume. We cannot forget how important Peter is to the church. Uh, we're, we're not Catholic, and so we wouldn't say that Peter was the first pope. But look, look at who Peter was. Like, it, it's not surprising that they would say he's the first head of the church. In many ways, Christ gives the mantle over to Peter. Um, and we should be thankful for it because the church grows out of control uh, through the work of Peter. Um, and so with that being said, um, let's look at the text. Uh, we're not going to stand up because we're really just going to go through the text, make comment as we go, and then hopefully see how that applies to our lives. But let's look now in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And this is huge. This is Peter. And what Paul is saying is he came to Antioch, if, if you recall, um, Last week, we talked about the fact that Peter had been eating with the Gentiles and that uh, some people came to visit him, namely James and, and John, uh, came to visit him and some people with, from James came, and we'll see what Peter does. So Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Um, And so when we gave Peter's resume, and this is sort of an aside, uh, when we gave Peter's resume, we talked about all of the amazing ways that God used Peter. But there's something also that you need to realize 
about Peter, um, that he, he was a sinful, broken person, just like us. And Peter, uh, I, I'm married to a theater major, um, and so I, I already like theater, and I already like the arts, but she's enabled me to be able to read and maybe understand um, a little bit, actually a lot more about theater, and, and my appreciation for plays and drama has, has grown tremendously since we've been married. And, and um, there's a, a device uh, that, that, is, that is used, especially in, in ancient uh, Greek plays, and, and it's, it's this personality trait this character trait that the hero often has. It's, it's called a tragic flaw. Um, and, and in these plays, like, the tragic flaw usually is what does the person in. Okay, and so we've identified all of the great things about Peter, uh, but Peter, it seems, has a tragic flaw, just like all of us have tragic flaws, and his is actually quite common to ours. Peter Peter really, really cares about what people think about him. He really does. I mean, think about it. Peter walked on water. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And still, on the night that Jesus died, three times in in a matter of minutes, it seems like, Peter denies him. People come to him and they're saying, hey, you were with Jesus. And he realizes right now it's not a good time to kind of be reckoned as with Jesus. These people are my fellow Jews. They're not going to be, you know, on my side here. And so he, he bows down to the peer influence, the pressure that he receives, and he denies Jesus three times. And here we have another incident. And this is a huge incident. And Peter gets a vision from God, right, of, of, of barbecue and bacon and, and all of the things that we love on a blanket. And it comes down and God says, eat it, eat it. Look, you don't understand this, but 2,000 years later, people in North Carolina are going to be so thankful. <laughs> that I'm sending you this, this pork-filled blanket that you might consume and be happy. No, but what is God saying? Look, that which I'm calling clean, let no one call unclean. And so Peter realizes, hey, I can go to the Gentiles. The gospel in and of itself, that Jesus is the only way to find acceptance with God, to find forgiveness and righteousness. The gospel in and of itself is hard enough to believe. Let's not create more boundaries and barriers and obstacles to the gospel than necessary. And so Peter gets this vision from God himself, and he goes with it. And the story that we get here from Paul is that Peter is in uh, Antioch at the time, chilling with Gentiles, eating barbecue, you know, maybe in the midst of a bacon cheeseburger. And James and, and John and Peter and their crew come and they're like, hold up, man. What are you doing? And, and, and Peter says, oh, they're pretty important. I don't want them to think less of me. So he leaves the table with the Gentiles. He walks across the cafeteria. Or we ate at the chalet all week at at TVR. If you've been to TVR, you know what the chalet is. It's their cafeteria. Hazel called it the cafe the whole time. Like anytime she's hungry, can we go to the cafe and eat? Um, If you've been to TVR, it's 
It's nice, but it's not a cafe. Let's, let's you know. Um, but nonetheless, he, he walks across this room and he starts eating with the Jews. Or, and, and, and Paul is furious. Paul is furious. And so the Bible says that he opposed Peter to his face. And he doesn't do it one-on-one. He does it right then and there in front of everybody. He says, look, when I saw their conduct, this is verse 14, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, in front of everyone. And we just did a series uh, and we talked about church discipline. And look, there's a proper procedure for church discipline, right? It's if you see someone who's in sin, that you approach them, and then if they won't, repent, if they're unrepentant, you bring another person and together you speak. And then you bring them before the elders and the elders bring them before the church. Paul doesn't do that. Paul does not follow proper protocol. Right then and there, he opposes Peter. If we know anything about Paul, it's probably loud and and quite visible and passionately to his face in front of everyone. And the question is, why did he do this? Why did he feel the need to confront Peter then and there in front of everyone? Uh, and, and there are really two things that, that, that happened when Paul confronted Peter. The first thing really happened when Peter separated from the Gentiles, and that, that's that he created a distinction within the church. Before James and and uh, Peter and, and their pals came. Uh, everyone in the church was eating together at this table. Gentiles and Jews were eating together. And then when James and Peter, or when James comes, uh, Peter goes to their table and creates division. And not only that, you've got James, John and Peter sitting at one table. These are the apostles. This is Peter. We saw his resume. And then you've got a whole bunch of new Gentile converts at the other table. What do you think their response is going to be? Well, it should be obvious. If I'm going to be a part of the church, I need to be with the apostles, which means I'm going to have to move to the Jewish table. And that comes with a lot of commitment. A lot of commitment that is not required by Jesus. And so this is really important because Peter, in his attempt to please people, which if you recall two weeks ago when we introduced the book, Paul says, who am I trying to please now, God or men? That's probably a jab at Peter as much as the Gentile Judaizers and the the Galatian Judaizers. Peter, in an attempt to please men and to maintain some sort of rapport with his boys, creates an obstacle and a barrier to the gospel within the church. Paul cannot stand for it. Now, the second reason that, that Paul confronts Peter to his face is actually because it's a risk. You have to understand that uh, in, in that day, for Paul to confront Peter was really to put his reputation on the line. We all know who Peter is. And Paul essentially is shaming Peter. 
And he knows that Peter will respond in one of two ways. He will either hear it, feel holy shame, conviction, and repent, or he'll brush Paul off. And depending on what Peter does, Paul will either be accepted as an authority in the church, one who can speak to Peter, an apostle in his own right, or he'll be rejected. And so Paul knows right here, right now, I have to put it all on the line. And he does. And we know that Peter responds uh, because, and Brad and I were talking about this yesterday, we see at the Jerusalem Council in Acts that happens a little bit later that Peter's argument more or less is the argument that Paul uses against him. And so we need to look at that argument. Uh, We need to dissect it. Uh, We need to ask ourselves really uh, one question about this story that we get about Paul opposing Peter to his face. Why was Paul willing to put it all on the line? Why was Paul willing to risk his authority as an apostle? Why was Paul willing to break discipline protocol to shame Peter publicly? Why was he willing to do this? And we get that as the text moves on. So let's start now in verse 15. And look, this is, you'll see. (laughs) Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And for this argument to make sense, we have to clarify some terms here. And so we're going to have some definitions up. Uh, You can write them down. Let me just say the reason that these definitions are on the screen is because they are kind of aberrations to the ways that we normally use these words. Um, systematic theology is a great thing. I love it. At one point in my life, that was what I wanted to do, was to study and then ultimately teach systematic theology. For those of you who don't know technically what systematic theology is, it takes the truths of the Bible and it breaks it into systems and categories, and then we study those systems and categories so that we can then read it back into the Bible and have greater clarity. And so it may take something like salvation and it breaks that into its own category and we learn what salvation is piece by piece, brick by brick. And then when we go back into scripture, we read the word salvation and we have a fuller understanding of what it is. And I love systematic theology, but it has its setbacks and we find those setbacks in this passage. Like it's all over this, this really this little paragraph. Because Paul is using words that are technical terms. 
two of them specifically. We've got three up here, but two of them specifically he's using. And they're technical terms, and we think of them in a very specific way. And we're going to have to break that specific cycle. We're going to have to leave our system for a second and allow that this is a variation on the usage. All right? And so we're going to have to appeal more to what's known as biblical theology. And biblical theology is not what it sounds like. It's not just theology that's biblical. Um, Because systematic theology then would be biblical theology, right? Biblical theology looks at the Bible as one whole document, as one whole unified story, and looks at themes and, and ideas, patterns that flow throughout all of the Bible and attempts to unify them and attempts to grow us in our faith through unifying the themes of the Bible. And sometimes it's much more helpful. I'm not a proponent of one necessarily over the other. We need both, as we see here. Uh, The first thing, the first word that that we see used that is outside of our typical usage is the word sinner. And Paul says, "We, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so, in our minds, we understand sinner as anyone who has broken any of God's commands. And so this statement can be confusing because we've heard that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul himself said that in Romans, right? So what does he mean? They're Jews uh, by birth and not Gentile sinners. Are Gentiles by birth sinners and are Jews by birth not? Uh, And and the answer is, of course not. Uh, We know Paul better than that. But... What's happening is that he's using this word sinner in more of its biblical context. Uh, It's biblical, historical context. And a sinner is anyone who transgresses or steps outside of the old covenant ceremonial laws. Uh, God is a covenant God. He makes a covenant with his people. He chooses a select people. In the old covenant which is another way of saying the Old Testament, those people are Israel. And he has covenantal laws that he's given them. Uh, We're going to see as we continue to examine Galatians that the covenant laws that he makes with Israel come after the covenant he makes with Abraham. And so those are going to come into conflict in in our hearts, and Paul's going to have to clarify that. The Holy Spirit's going to have to clarify that for us. Uh, But right here, Paul is saying that they're transgressors of the Old Covenant. Well, what is the first sign and obedient act of the Old Covenant? Circumcision. So, naturally, Gentiles are outside of the Covenant because they, from birth, from eight days... (laughs) are breaking a ceremonial law, a ceremonial act of the covenant. All right? And so automatically that that brings up this difficult, confusing distinction that we have to make in Old Testament law because there are moral laws and there are ceremonial laws. There are all kinds of laws. Ceremonial laws deal with cleanliness. Uh, There are laws specifically regarding the cleanliness and sanctification. That word sanctification is a big word that just means set-apartness. God called them and set them apart from the rest of the nations. Ceremonial laws deal with what it means to be God's covenant people. 
And they typically revolve around cleanliness, circumcision, washing, what foods you can and can't eat. These things are all ceremonial laws. And God's people keep them to remain clean. Uh, And so uh, that's important to note that when Paul says sinner, what he means is there are people who just don't keep the ceremonial laws and never have. And so Paul and Peter and James and John, they kept the ceremonial law because they were born Jews. All right? And so... We see sinner, and then we had to explain what a ceremonial law was in order to understand fully what Paul is saying by sinner. Another word that we're going to see used several times, and we're going to go back to that text and look, is justification. And now, we've split salvation. I talked about systematic theology. Typically, what systematic theology does is split the doctrine of salvation into three different aspects. The first is justification. The second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. You don't, don't worry about taking notes here because this is how we think about these things. Um, and so when we say justification, what we mean is just as if I'd never sinned, right? And so we say that one of the effects of the fall is that we are under the penalty of sin, which is death, the wages of sin are death. We deserve hell. So Jesus justifies us. So we no longer deserve hell. It happens on the day you repent and convert. That's justification. And so we tend to speak of justification in the past tense. We have been justified. And then we say we are being sanctified. We're being made holy. We're being made clean. We're being set apart, right? Because one of the effects of the fall of sin is that now we're under the power of sin. It controls our lives. Uh, We give in to temptation. We can't help but sin. And Jesus, by sending his Holy Spirit, is saving us. He is sanctifying us. That's how we tend to think of it. And then we say glorification. And we say one day, Jesus will come back. And one of the effects of sin is that we're in its presence, right? We see this. We've talked about this before. Um, I love to talk about this because this is my, it's my favorite to think about. One of the effects of the fall is that we are constantly in the presence of sin. And that looks like war. It looks like racism. It looks like cancer and death. It looks like broken homes. It looks like starving, dying children. The presence of sin is all around us. But one day, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to glorify himself in the ultimate sense. He's going to glorify us and he's going to eradicate the presence of sin and death from the earth. I love preaching about that because I get all jacked up. I'm like jumping around. This is great stuff. Jesus is going to eliminate the presence of sin from us altogether. There's no struggle with the power of sin anymore. Sanctification will be done, and it's all glorification. Right? And that's how we look at salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And we split that into those three different terms. Well, sometimes the term justification is used to mean all three. Sometimes the term sanctification is used to mean all three. Sometimes the term glorification is actually used to 
mean all three. And so our systematic theology, our technical terms break down. And this is one of those cases, and we're going to see why. It'll be very clear why. Justification is not just the act of God forgiving us, but it is the process of us being made a part of God's covenant people. And so if you remember, sin is transgressing the covenant and thus being outside of the law and outside, more specifically, of God's covenant. That's how Paul is using it. So justification is the opposite. Justification is the process of being pulled into God's covenant community. So with that in mind, with those terms in mind, let's go back to the text and let's look at at what Peter is saying, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners or not people outside of the covenant, right? They're outside of the covenant by birth, all right? And now it's interesting. He says we here. So for a moment, even though the book, uh, this letter is written to the Galatian church, which is primarily made up of Gentile converts, he's speaking specifically maybe to Peter, but by speaking to Peter, he's speaking to Jewish Christians who are there. And he says, we are Jews by birth, uh, and we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Uh, We know that what makes somebody enter into the covenant community is not the ability to keep the law. It's not the ability especially or the keeping of the ceremonial laws. It's not clean or unclean. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus has done. And it's faith in the work of Jesus. And so, so we know that we don't enter into the faith. And so we also, we also, along with the Gentile sinners, believed into Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified and so now this is even bigger he's pulling it back even bigger and saying it's not only that the only way that we enter into the covenant community of of Christ uh, of God is by faith now he's saying that that's always been the case There's never been anyone, including and especially Abraham, and he'll come to that. I keep hinting at Abraham. He's going to use Abraham in a big way. So maybe this is a little aside. Maybe in your devotions and your Bible studies, uh, just to help brush you up and get ready, read about the life of Abraham. Read about how God calls Abram out, um, promises a lot of things to him, and then does a lot of things through him. I read about Abram slash Abraham. Um, But no one has ever been justified by keeping the law. That's big. That means that every Jew who was actually a part of the covenant community of God was not saved by obeying the commandments, but rather by faith toward Jesus. Faith toward Jesus. By believing that God was a promise keeper, that God was a covenant God who forgave them with sacrifices, whether they realized it or not, they were having faith toward Jesus Christ. And that was their salvation. Not the things they did or didn't do. 
And so if we go on, verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified, and now there's where we begin to see this new usage of this term justified. We were justified. We are endeavoring to be justified. And so if in this endeavor, in this journey, in this process, if in this process uh, we too are found to be sinners. Now again, remember, sinner, someone who breaks the ceremonial cleanliness laws. So if we in this process are found to eat a pulled pork sandwich, more or less, right? If we're found to eat something unclean, are we, or is Christ then an agent of sin? And now we're coming back to the idea of sin that we know, which is separation from God. Now you have to understand, in the Old Covenant, it's kind of unified, but through Jesus, those two things are no longer the same. And so what, what Paul is saying is most likely or what, really what's happening here is Paul is most likely using an argument that the Judaizers have used against him. They said, by sitting down with those Gentile people, by eating their food, their uncleanliness, by being in their presence, by not calling them to be circumcised and to enter into the covenant, you are now with them. You are outside of the covenant. And what you are saying is that Jesus Christ and his work calls people to sin. And Paul says, no way. Not at all. No. Because of what I just said. It's never been words. It's never been clean and unclean. It's been faith. God cleans. And really, he's just reminding Peter of what God already told him. Remember when the blanket came down, God told Peter, look, what God has called clean, let no one call unclean. So is Christ the agent of sin? Because now there are Jews who are eating pork and other things or Maybe even some Jewish-born people who didn't get circumcised. It's probably not the case. I mean, there's just tradition and things that are not going to be abandoned. But is that, is, that the, is, is that what Jesus is doing? And the answer is no, certainly not. Heck no. Justification is by faith. <laughs> Sin, sinner, It's a relational term. Where are you in relationship to God? Are you in the covenant? Are you out? And what Paul is saying is, look, guys. If you eat with the Gentiles, that doesn't make you out of the covenant. It doesn't change your place with God. And he's going to hit it even harder in a minute. So let's move on to verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor. All right, so what is it that Paul tore down? I mean, it's quite simple. I mean, he just spent a whole bunch of time tearing down this idea that you can do anything that will make you clean. 
This idea that justification is by anything other than faith. Specifically, he's torn down the idea that justification is by keeping the law. And so what he says is, look, if, if, if I, Paul, rebuild what I tore down by observing and forcing others to observe Jewish ceremonial laws, then I'm a transgressor. A, because I've already done things that have made me unclean. And B, because nobody can keep the law. Nobody can do it. It's just wrong. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is amazing. He words it so awkwardly. (laughs) Paul sometimes does. But really what he's saying is, look, you're either alive to sin and the law and death, or you're alive to God in Christ. And all of that hinges on what you believe your righteousness comes from. Is it your good works or is it the work of Jesus? It's one or the other. One is idolatry, sin, and death. One is salvation. Then he goes even further. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? (laughs) Normally we hear things like put on Christ. Or we are in Christ. This is one of the few times we hear it's Christ in us. Working in us, making us clean. Cleanliness now Sin and transgression versus righteousness is no longer an outward sign. It's an inward thing. And as Christ is in us, Christ who is our righteousness makes us righteous. He makes us right standing with God. I am crucified with Christ. I'm no longer, it's no longer me. It's no longer my works. It's Christ working in me. And the life I now live, I live in flesh, in the flesh, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? And so he kind of completes this first argument that we're going to see against the Judaizers. They make the argument that if Peter and if the Galatian church doesn't make the Gentiles... um, observe all of the ceremonial laws, and if they eat outside of what has been called clean in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that they make Christ an agent of sin. But Paul completes his argument and says, look, it was never about what I could or couldn't do. Does this sound repetitive yet? I hope it does. Because it's only when I get tired of hearing that that my head and my heart start to actually believe it. And I want you to get tired of hearing us saying this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. There is nothing you can do to improve your standing with God and thus nothing you can do to 
denigrate, to lose and hinder your standing with God because your standing with God, also known as righteousness or justification, hinges completely on one thing, the work of Jesus Christ. And what it is to be a Christian then, to be in the covenant, is to be one who has faith in Jesus, not one who keeps the law. Does that mean don't keep the law? No, we're going to see that later. Galatians 5 is huge, man. He, he, he sets it up, says it's about faith, but then he says, but that doesn't mean that you can live like a pagan. And we're not saying live like a pagan. We're talking about what makes you clean and unclean. And once he finishes it, this is what he says. You say that if I eat with the Gentiles, then I make Christ an agent of sin. That's not the case. I am not nullifying the grace of God. All right, subtext, you are. For if righteousness were through the law, which is essentially what you're saying, whether you want to say it in those terms or not, then Christ died for no purpose. So I'm not making Christ an agent of sin. You're making Christ an agent of folly. You're making Christ a dummy who came down from heaven for no reason, who lived a perfect life when we all could have, who kept the law that apparently we could keep because if we can keep part of it and be righteous that way, then we have to keep all of it. He did something he didn't have to do. Ultimately, was killed for false charges for absolutely no reason. All of a sudden, we see why this is so important. Peter and the Judaizers are thinking about clean and unclean. Paul is thinking about the cross. He says, if you call anyone to keep any part of the law as a means of salvation, then you have nullified the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Tully Tavision, he's a pastor in uh, Coral Ridge uh, in Florida. Uh, he, he, just let, he released a book. It's called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Uh, but what Paul is saying here is it's, it's, the stakes are much higher than that. Not only does Jesus plus nothing equal everything, Jesus plus anything equals damnation. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. The minute that you add anything to Jesus in hopes of gaining righteousness or merit, you have lost everything because you've made yourself the agent of righteousness and it cannot happen. It can't. It doesn't work that way. So this is huge. This morning, as I was reading my devotions, uh, that was not this text, which I usually try not to do, um, just because I get all confused in my head. Uh, um, it struck me that I was reading James, right? So now think about what Paul says. He says it in front of everybody, and think about who was there. It was Paul and Barnabas. It was James, the brother of Jesus, John the Apostle, and Peter. 
Apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have every New Testament author. Every single one. So this argument affects the entire history of our church, the entire foundation of our, of our scripture. Everyone who, and they all write their epistles after this confrontation. And so all of them are affected by this. And this is huge. In many ways, the church hangs in the balance. Our faiths and our lives hang in the balance. The very New Testament hangs in the balance on what comes out of this conversation and what comes out of this one concept. Why was it so big that, that Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and, and thousands upon thousands of others were willing to fight against the Catholic Church and to die for? It was this doctrine, this understanding that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. Really, the way to say it is this, that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. And that's what's at stake here. That's why, Peter, or that's why Paul is willing to confront Peter to his face in front of everybody and say, look, I'm putting my apostleship on the line right now. Because if it's Jesus plus anything, then I should have stayed a Pharisee. If it's Jesus plus anything, then I'm out. But salvation, justification, use all the terms you want, sanctification, glorification, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus saves us and then he sustains us and he will reward us ultimately, by bringing us into his unadulterated presence. This is the gospel. Everything else is bad news. And now for us, we have to ask the question. We are forced to ask the question. Uh, and, and if you've ever been on a mission trip, you, you've wrestled with this question. What are we packa packaging with Jesus when we call others to believe in him. In the mission field, I've seen it. I've been an agent of it. It's Jesus plus democracy and capitalism. And we're, we're condemning people. I've seen it here in the South. It's Jesus plus prohibition. So many things. We're condemning people. It's Jesus plus political advocacy or Jesus plus anything. Does that mean don't be politically involved? No. Does it mean that if you feel like you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't drink? No. Does it mean that you shouldn't be thankful that God has placed us in this nation at this time? Absolutely not. But if you package anything with Jesus, you are sentencing people to death. And we must repent. And if in your own hearts you are laboring to please God, 
with your works, with your righteousness, with your doctrinal knowledge and strength, purity. If you're seeking to make yourself right with God and you are bearing that burden, then right here and right now, repent. Feel the freedom that comes from trusting in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we have nothing to offer you. You've told us through the prophets that our righteousness, our, our righteous acts are filthy rags to you, that you hate our sacrifices, that we are not of clean enough hands and pure enough hearts to approach you but you've told us and you've reminded us again and again that you are a loving God who's slow to wrath, quick to mercy, abounding in love and grace, and you demonstrated that on the cross. And even before that, you demonstrated that by orchestrating a plan before the foundations of the earth to rescue us from ourselves. And so, God, we are thankful for Jesus in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. We're thankful for Jesus in whom we find justification, sanctification. We will find glorification. We're thankful for Jesus who began a good work in us and as your word says, is faithful and just, righteous, loving enough to complete it. We began in him, God. Don't allow us to fool ourselves into thinking that we can continue in ourselves. Instead, remind us every minute of the day that we are utterly dependent on grace. And as that happens, may our hearts be turned to worship, to missions, to the church, to discipleship, to obedience, not in order to be right with you, but because we are right already in Jesus. And may Christ be magnified throughout all of the earth. In his name, amen. At this point in time,